Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information on History Hub and to download many more podcasts, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. Brian Shane is the Mary Ball Washington Professor of American History at University College Dublin, a Fulbright Scholar and Associate Professor of History at Ohio University. In this episode, part three of his five-part series on Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, The Life and Death of a Statesman. Lincoln and the Rise of the Republican Party. What reawakened Lincoln's national political ambitions was what by the mid-1850s appeared to him to be a drift away from the principles that Washington had stood for and which the nation professed in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. The culprit was a slave power that was seeking to overturn sacred compromise and that rejected the ideal that slavery was wrong. His political heroes, Washington, Henry Clay, and Thomas Jefferson, had been slave owners. But they had at least conceived of a future in which the land of liberty would expel slavery. Washington had even freed his slaves in his will. By contrast, in the 1850s, many Southern slaveholders were arguing that slavery was not just a necessary evil, but a positive good, something that benefited whites and blacks. By mid-decade, they came to find an ally in Illinois' own Stephen Douglas, the diminutive giant as he had become known, one of Lincoln's arch enemies. In 1854, Douglas, a national party leader of the rival Democrats, proposed the Kansas-Nebraska bill. Lincoln's opposition to this bill illustrates his newfound appreciation for the political importance of slavery and a refinement of his own understanding of good governance. The Kansas-Nebraska bill came about because Douglas and others wanted to build a railroad across the Great Plains. Progress in California's gold rush required it. The problem was that the Great Plains was unorganized Indian territory, and under a previous congressional compromise co-authored by Henry Clay, slavery was banned from that area. To attract Southern congressmen to the idea, Douglas agreed to overturn the prohibition on slavery. His Kansas-Nebraska bill permitted slavery's expansion into those lands, with its ultimate fate to be decided by local voters, who could choose whether slavery would be permanent under a doctrine he called popular sovereignty, or whether it would be banned. In Douglas's eyes, this was an American solution to an American problem. In Lincoln's eyes, it was an amoral bill that placed slavery and freedom on as moral equivalents and overturned a semi-sacred pledge that circumscribed slavery. He professed being astounded, thunderstruck, and stunned. He came to see slavery not just as a sectional challenge, but a truly national problem, one that threatened freedom for future generations of Americans who might well have to contest with slave labor in new lands west of the Mississippi. Just as crucially, the potential expansion of slavery overturned the legacy of the founders, whom Lincoln credited with abolishing slavery in the Northwest Territories, where his family had fled. Lincoln was right, but his understanding of the founders was also selective. Southerners pointed out that the Constitution had also provided protections for slavery, that Jefferson had lamented the compromise that had precluded slavery in the Louisiana territories. They also based their claims on the idea that government's primary purpose was protecting property rights, defined by them to include slaves. But Lincoln earnestly believed that the founders' example pointed towards a slave-free America, albeit one in the distant future. Pragmatically, however, there was little in 1854 that Lincoln could do, and the Kansas-Nebraska bill had permanently split his party, the Whigs, along sectional lines. Because Americans seem only able to handle two main political parties, the question was what second party would emerge to replace the Whigs. 
The first likely contender was the Know-Nothing Party, and Lincoln's rejection of it is revealing of his priorities and his global perspective on American values. The Know-Nothings were essentially a single-issue party, and as their banner suggests, their concern was primarily with protecting Americans from foreign influences. What foreign influences, you might ask? They were concerned about Irish whiskey and German beer, amongst other things. They were especially concerned with Catholicism. And the influx of new immigrants, many of them from Ireland, others from Germany, many of them Catholic, who are coming to America's shores. The concern was so great that the Massachusetts State Legislature, the Know Nothing Party, managed to capture it. They won mayor's races in Philadelphia and San Francisco and even the governorship of California. The Know Nothings, restyled as the American Party, won the Chicago mayor's race. But Lincoln, in a revealing letter to a close slaveholding Kentucky friend, denounced the new party. I am not a Know Nothing, that is certain. How could I be? How can anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it'll read, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer immigrating to some country where they're They make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. Though the Republican Party would inherit many know-nothing nativists into its fold, Lincoln's own rejection helped him during the Civil War. German and Irish immigrants provided nearly one quarter of the recruits for the Union Army. The truce of the declaration that all men are created equal belong to everyone, Lincoln told an audience on a July 4th speech in 1858. It is the electric cord in that declaration that will link those patriotic hearts as long as the love of freedom exists in the minds of men throughout the world. America needed to remain a refuge for those displaced in the old world. This was sage advice from someone who had never traveled abroad and whose ancestors had come over from England in the 17th century. Lincoln could have claimed the mantle of a blue-blooded Anglo-Saxon, But again, he appreciated America's larger place in the world. Lincoln's responses to the Know-Nothings and to the Kansas-Nebraska Act are revealing in another way. His reference to degeneracy betrays what was becoming a consuming fear. By the late 1850s, he perceived that the freedom-loving legacy of the founders was being lost, replaced with a widening belief that slavery was and ought to be a permanent and expanding part of the American experiment. Lincoln and most Republicans could accept slavery within its current boundaries as part of a compromise that was necessary to preserve the Union. Indeed, Lincoln distanced himself from those calling for immediate abolition, particularly those whom he believed did not respect the rule of law. Nor were most Republicans ready to accept a biracial republic. The color line remained a boundary Lincoln could not yet cross. Like Clay and Jefferson and many mainstream politicians opposed to slavery, Lincoln suggested that colonization of persons of color to Africa or elsewhere would be necessary, a position he held until around the time of his Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. When accused of preaching black equality during his famous Senate campaign against Stephen Douglas, he vehemently denied it. To thunderous applause, he stated that he was not nor ever had been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. Whites are superior, he reiterated, but he rejected the idea that because of that, the Negro should be denied everything.
During those debates, Douglas accused him of being two-faced. Lincoln self-deprecatingly responded, Honestly, if I were two-faced, would I be showing you this one? Lincoln was walking a fine line, but not being duplicitous. What he had a considerable problem with was slavery-fixated politicians reaching outside of their state boundaries to corrupt other aspects of the American political process. It was appalling to him when a South Carolina congressman attacked Massachusetts Republican Charles Sumner on the floor of the U.S. Congress, beating him over the head with a cane. Equally appalling was news that the women of Charleston sent the assailant a replacement cane with the inscription, Hit Him Again. The problem with popular sovereignty, as Lincoln saw it, was that it unleashed the people's passions, as evidenced by perpetual violence that broke out in the Kansas Territory. Popular sovereignty was also amoral. If people can vote to permit slavery into a territory where it had previously been banned, then what would prevent them from simply voting to reopen the international slave trade that had been banned a half century earlier? Indeed, some Southerners were again discussing just this thing. Politics, in short, needed to be aimed towards moral ends. An alliance of Douglas Democrats and slaveholders was ready to shove slavery down the throats of yeoman farmers, farmers like Lincoln's dad. This, according to Lincoln, was a betrayal of the founding. In today's hypercharged political environment, Lincoln has been enlisted by American progressives to demonstrate the need for dramatic change and reform. On the other side of the aisle, Lincoln has been used by American conservatives to suggest the need to turn back to tradition, to the founders, to answer all questions. In my view, both sides missed the point. For Lincoln, progress came from looking backwards, but looking backwards was designed to inspire progress. The dramatic change that the founders had brought about was the inspiration for the change that Lincoln continued to envision, a dramatic change that he believed the country and the world needed. But in so doing, Lincoln was also redefining what he understood the nation to be. It was not just a clunky system of states, a union. It was an organic being with a shared destiny that required growth and evolution. It had a national spirit, an ethical code, and what he referred to in his first inaugural as mystic chords of memory. Lincoln was coming to see the country he loved as not merely a union, but a nation. This was the spirit in which Lincoln set about working with like-minded former Whigs and Free Soil Democrats to create the Republican Party, the ancestor of the modern Republican Party today, though sometimes the linkages are hard to find. In his view, the country, the union he cherished above practically all else, could not permanently withstand this division. He did not believe war was inevitable. But he did believe that if the nation did not eventually become entirely free, slavery would once again incrementally become legal throughout the entire nation. Put differently, the slave power appeared willing to cross any boundary, foreign or domestic, to pursue its reckless ends. So he and his party would have to demonstrate that there were lines that could not be crossed. Lincoln was once again demonstrating his appreciation of the importance of boundaries. Lincoln's own election to the presidency signified a number of things. One of them was that white Northerners were tired of gridlock as slave-related debates and compromises on behalf of slaveholding aristocrats seemed to be preventing the federal government from accomplishing much of anything. A route for the Pacific Railroad couldn't be agreed upon, harbors weren't being repaired, the nation had gone through a terrible economic crisis and was only slowly recovering, the debt was growing, Republicans offered something both old and new to white Northerners. Lincoln was a candidate outwardly humble and humorous, but one who had appropriated the language of the founders. Lincoln was not even on the ticket in most southern states. 
And to Southerners, the election of an anti-slavery leader, even a moderate one like Lincoln, indicated something frightfully new, their political marginalization. The Deep South concluded that the only way to preserve slavery was to leave the Union. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. To receive updates on the latest History Hub podcasts and papers, please subscribe to our mailing list on historyhub.ie.